Welcome back, everyone. I'm Guy Adami. This is On The Tape, joined, as always, by my dear friends, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Look, today we're going to be talking about some of the signs we may be at the top of the market. Maybe we should look at defensive names and what sectors actually work in this environment. And you know what? Later, we'll be going off the tape in an interview with Mikel Jolet, creator and frontman of the Airborne Toxic event. It was a wonderful conversation. It's not typical of what we do, but I guarantee you'll be riveted by it. But folks, before we even start, Dan and Danny, you know, I like the Twitter. And earlier today, I looked at Wolf Van Halen's Twitter account, obviously the son of Eddie Van Halen. This is what he tweeted. Cannot possibly fathom what must come over a parent to name their newborn boy Guy, in quotes. A qualification (laughs) way beyond their years. Can you imagine that? Wolf Van Halen (laughs) taking shots at me on the Twitter. Unbelievable, Dan Nathan. You know how many times I've actually asked you and I just forget. I was like, what is your real name? Don't I do that pretty frequently? I'm like, so like, like I'm filling out some form and I'm adding, yeah, what is your yeah, real name? Yeah. And you always say guy. It's Guy Christopher for you guys it's who guy care Christopher. out there. Danny Moses, you want to take a shot at me? Go ahead, because everybody else seems to be. <laughs> no, the, the the guy I want to talk about is Jerome Powell. I mean, yes. you're, you're my you're my favorite guy. There's I not even a question. That. I don't even. So, yeah, but the guy we should be talking about is Jerome Powell. And we will talk about that. As yeah. you know, my name is Guy Christopher. In case you guys care, my father was Gaetano Marino. And back in the early 1960s, they stayed away from ethnic names. Therefore, we got Guy. But you're right. Jerome Powell is the guy we should be talking about. And I said it on Fast Money on Thursday night, and I'll say it here during this podcast. When you're digging a hole for yourself, you need to drop the shovel. And I think that's exactly what's going on with Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve. They keep jawboning the market. And quite frankly, the market's starting to call BS on them. And they really should. You know, Jerome Powell says they're going to let inflation run hot for an extended period of time. And we're not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. Well, guess what? The market's doing it for them. And we've said a number of times that 1.5% in the 10-year was the line of demarcation. And if and when we got to it, the market was not going to react favorably. Well, guess what? Here we are north of 1.5%. The market doesn't like it. And these big flying high valuation tech names that were the darling in a zero interest rate environment are now being taken out to the woodshed, and rightly so. Now, the question is, does it manifest itself in the S&P 500? Because quite frankly, it really hasn't yet. The NASDAQ, as we sit here, is probably down close to 10% from, I think, the February 12th high. But I got to tell you, folks, the S&P is not far behind. So I look at rates. I think that's the huge tell for the market. And I think the Fed has this exactly wrong. And I think market participants are finally figuring that out. You know, it's interesting, Guy. You mentioned the S&P versus the NASDAQ. The S&P 500 is basically flat on the year, down about 4.5% from its all-time highs just made a couple of weeks ago. But like you said, the NASDAQ is down 10% and it's down 1% on the year. The NASDAQ 100, which we know is heavily weighted towards the FMAGA complex, that's Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon, about 45% of the weight of that index of 100 stocks is down about 3.5%. That is not something that we have seen a whole heck of a lot over the last few years where we're seeing that sort of underperformance from the mega cap tech names. So that's definitely pretty interesting. And when you talk about signs, signs everywhere, signs, uh, Danny, that's for you. I think that yeah, you totally- Yeah, I did that before. In, no, yeah. I, I know. I get that. Yeah. But you know, it's really interesting. I saw this tweet from Lizanne Saunders. She's the um, strategist over um, at Schwab or the new TD Schwab. She said this was really interesting about insider sales this year. We have seen a reported $128 million of purchases 
versus nearly $5 billion of insider sales. Those are corporates. Those are executives at corporations. And then we've also seen just, I mean, the issuance as far as the convert market from the corporates and the secondary offerings. And then we have all these SPAC deals where every private company that thinks that they could sell at a premium want to sell to a SPAC right now. And then you have Robinhood that we thought was dead as a doornail, what, about a month ago, they're going to be filing confidentially to go public. And then obviously there's Coinbase. And and so to me, it seems like all the smart money's selling. And you got to ask yourself, who the hell are the buyers here? Let's tie this back in a little bit and we'll take these each in order. But the SPAC market, we always said, would be impacted if rates started to move higher. Because the idea of having your money tied up in a SPAC is you're making T-bill type return, your money's safe at 10 bucks a share. If rates go up, then there's an opportunity cost that you're kind of losing. Now, rates aren't up a lot, but that is something to be said. Dan, on top of the insider selling in the publicly traded securities, a lot of the pipes that are occurring in the SPACs after the follow-on of the IPO are insider sales as well. I know it doesn't necessarily count in terms of public equity that's hitting the market, but there are more people cashing out that are there. And what people should understand is, I don't know what we're up to as far as IPOs in 2021 in SPACs. We're definitely north of $60 billion. Maybe you guys could find, find the number. I don't know what it is. But it's not just the $60 billion. The $60 billion means that within 24 months from now, that's going to be another $120 billion. Normally, you know, whatever the IPO size is, the size of the, of the pipe, sometimes it's the same size, sometimes it's times two, times four. So to your point, you are sucking up uh, you know, there's a, just a ton of supply out there. There's not enough demand to suck it up. Let me t- go back now to what I think is also going on in the market is that we're on the other side of Goldilocks here. Why do I say that? Why would rates pull in from here? Would rates pull in from here because the Fed says, oh, we're, we're going to do the twist operation. We're going to sell short term and, and buy longer dated treasuries. Nah, maybe. Would it pull in because inflation kind of ebbs a little? I don't know. But why it would pull in for sure is if the economy is not strong, it doesn't turn. And then where is the PE? You guys are talking about, you know, growth stocks and stuff. That's a real problem here. I think we're on the other side of Goldilocks here and we can have fits and starts. And the move we saw on Monday when the market was up a lot, that's what I believe is a, maybe we're not in a bear market, but a bear market rally within this kind of craziness that's been going on. No, I agree. It's sort of like the scene in Goodfellas when things were going so great for so long. And then, you know, Ray Liotta, that's sort of the other side of things. This is when things get really bad. And listen, I'm not suggesting we're at that point in the movie, but we're damn close, I think. And listen, I know you'll listen to these podcasts and say these three guys are always negative. First of all, that's not true. We're just trying to point out some of the things that we're seeing. And quite frankly, in this environment, there are a lot of things to be scared of. There are some things that have been working really well that we'll talk about, specifically a lot of these banks, which probably still have room to the upside despite the moves they've seen. But what I'll tell you to Danny's point, when you have a rising rate environment, specifically, in my opinion, predicated on inflation, which is rampant. I have people telling me they're paying $3.20 for gas. The same time last year, it was two twenty. I mean, it's all over the place. The Fed just doesn't measure it. But if you're living in the United States right now, you know damn well inflation is here. And that's what the market is telling us. So they can say they're going to let inflation run hot for an extended period of time. Embedded in that comment is the thing they think they can control around a certain level. They can't. And the market's calling them out on it. And this 1.5% level in the 10-year, watch how fast, in my opinion, we go from one5 to 2%. And watch how negative the market reacts to that. That's what I think's happening. And that's what I think you're going to see over the next few weeks, Dan, Nathan. Guy, I got one for you, buddy. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a day trader. Look at you. 
Look at you. You're good fellas and me. You're good felling me right there. And that <laughs> just, leads right into what? I'm just happy that you didn't quote Godfather. Uh, <laughs> so I'm glad we're on to another mafia movie, which is, which is really good. But speaking of loan sharks and speaking of mafia, this debt, I want to talk about the debt of the U.S. And I know it's been talked about. And as a matter of fact, in February, Powell said he didn't really care. Someone asked him, he said, what do you think about this $28 trillion? He goes, not my problem. It'll fix itself. I'm not worried. I just want people to remember, even before COVID, we were running annual deficits in the government. Debt was rising. We, we had the tax cut a couple years ago. Great. Everybody's happy. But we've not seen the improvement in the, in the tax receipts that we thought we would. So this has been growing. I know we're adding five or six trillion here, probably seven trillion more by the time this COVID is, is said and done with all the stimulus. But you're nearing 30 trillion. The debt to GDP number that we used to make fun of third world countries, we're going to be at a, what, a 20 trillion GDP and a 30 trillion debt. You I can do that math. Be- I mean, it's a hundred. Yeah, it's it's one- crazy. It's a hundred and fifty percent. I'm not trying to jump on you here, but the numerator continues to go higher in the form of debt, and the denominator is stubbornly around this twenty trillion mark. Unsustainable, Danny Moses. Yeah, no. And I just want to say, there's a website out there, usdebtclock.org. It actually exists. You'll see it. Your brain will explode when you turn it on. But go look at it. It, it monitors all these things that we're talking about. And the reason I bring it up is we got to get our way out of this. So again. Other side of Goldilocks, I'm sorry, guys, taxes are going up and you can leave your city, leave your state. I'm not I think that's a good idea if you don't want to pay the taxes you're living in. But corporations are going to be paying higher. I don't see how we're getting away from this over the next several years. And I don't think we're reckoning with that either, Dan. Yeah, I would just say this, you know, and we've had our our share of crypto conversations on the podcast so far since we've started and some fiery ones. But, you know, it's funny, this whole conversation, if you're like a coiner and you're listening to this, you're one of these kind of evangelicals, you know what their only answer is? Their answer is Bitcoin. Their answer is Bitcoin, which is really funny in a way because we're all trying to figure out, the three of us, the whole whole crypto thing as we're going here. But that's the answer to this. And, you know, it's interesting because in New York City, there's going to be a primary for for mayor in June. And and there's a huge field of candidates right now. And I've been listening to a lot of them pretty closely. And the first question they get all the time is exactly what you're saying, Danny, is that corporates have been leaving New York City. Obviously, some very wealthy people who pay a lot of taxes have been leaving in droves here. And there's going to be a massive budget deficit. And so I just think it's really interesting because that's going on, obviously, in San Francisco and in California in general. So you have these two states that I think may combine maybe 10% of the country's GDP or so, there's going to be massive budget shortfalls. This is one point that I'm just going to make, is that when you think about all the debt, it's to get ourselves out of this. Yeah, taxes are going to go ha- higher, but we're going to have to have more debt. So how much higher can interest rates really go? So Guy keeps talking about this line in the sand at 1.5% in the 10-year, and we're flirting at it. We're either side of it or here and there. Go back 10 years, and that 1.4 to 1.6% in the 10-year is a massive support level prior to the pandemic, and now it's resistance. Go back 30 years in the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Draw a line from the upper left to the bottom right, where we we were basically at zero just this past year. I just don't think we're going meaningfully higher than 2%. And I just don't think that that equities, you know, that's not really going to be the thing that stalls out this market. I mean, in my opinion, and I know that you guys feel very differently. If we go to 2% very quickly, fine. The S&P is going back to 3,500. I got two things on that. One is that Powell doesn't really care he says about the debt because he says rates are so low on how they have to service it. Well, that can go against you rather quickly, to your point, Dan. What happens at 5%? I'm not saying we're going to 5%. 
Remember the old days when rates would go up because someone would be close to default versus so credit risk. Remember those times where there were credit spreads would widen or something would be deemed, quote, risky and it would trade up. Imagine if U.S. interest rates started to trade higher because people were actually worried about the ability of the U.S. to pay. But I got to give a shout out to one of my really close friends who nailed this and got vilified for it. And it's happening now and it's going to happen. Meredith Whitney. And by the way, we worked together with Steve Eisman, Vincent Daniel back in the 90s. And then she was the one that actually introduced our crew to Michael Lewis when he was looking for people that were involved in the big short. She made a muni call in 2010 and 11 and got crushed for it, right? She wasn't wrong. Her thought was that if you're in a local community and the community's in bad shape and you have a pension or you're going to be a, a cop or a teacher, you know, wherever you're going to work in the city, you're going to leave because you don't know what, what the condition. That is happening now also to a degree. It's not just the wealthy people that are looking to move out of some of these towns. It's teachers and policemen. They're analyzing muni's. You know, local municipalities are in real trouble, and it, and it can be a self-fulfilling disaster if people actually leave certain counties and towns in California and so forth. So, so I heard uh, Ray McGuire and Andrew Yang in the last week. And, and what, listen, the next mayor in New York City is going to be elected not because they're going to say that things are going to be fantastic in the next couple of years, but because they're going to have to make some very hard decisions. And those pensions – those healthcare benefits, those all that stuff that we're talking about when a budget like New York City's is underwater, they have a hard time paying going forward. So that's going to be a huge issue for these big municipalities like New York City. Yeah, it's interesting. I too worked with Meredith Whitney. I was a CIBC really? world market. Yeah, look at that. And whoa, she whoa, made whoa, whoa, whoa. not what whoa, year? whoa, whoa, Danny. I'm just what year? telling you. Were we you. there together? I we may CIBC. we may have been. I was probably scared to cross paths with you at that time. I was on the block desk. We were we were on forty third and Madison. Explain to our audience. Explain to these young new participants who just came in with all their stimmy money and traded on Robinhood. What a block desk! You know, it's was, interesting. Guy. I mean, I, I'll go off the rails. We're going to go off the tape later, but I'll go off the rails now and just tell you. So I was a commodities trader for fifteen years, and in two thousand ish. Commodities market was was dying, and equities were obviously exploding. And in term, internally at Goldman Sachs, they started to move people around. And so I went to the block desk at One New York Plaza, and I walked up there, and there were it was a huge desk of people. And this is this is not hyperbole. I'd say each pad, each guy or gal had about five or six different stocks they were trading, and each group was making anywhere from. 150000 to a quarter million dollars a day per pad in commissions and markups and whatever you called those things. And I looked around and said, wait a second, you're not taking any risk to do this. And they're like, no, you know, we're filling customer orders. And I, and I asked people, I said, why do clients pay you six cents a share? And they said, well, they're paying for our calendar and our ability to commit capital and our research. And I looked around, I said, this is absolutely unsustainable. There's no way this is going to last. And it wound up being true. So that was my foray into the block desks of the equity world. But with that said, I did work with Meredith, and she obviously made her career on the back of the bank call, specifically Citibank. It was a great call. Yeah, but I'll say this, and Danny's right. Her premise in terms of munis were right, but in our world, in our business, being early is being wrong. So as great as that bank call was, I mean, she was early on the Muni call. I think you would agree with that as well. But getting back to the market, the other thing that we don't talk about enough that I think we should bring up here in the final few minutes is volatility. And I'm telling you now, one of the many unintended consequences of the Federal Reserve's policies, they've made people lazy and they've made people 
basically get away from the vol market because historically you buy vol for protection. That stopped. It actually flipped where people started using it as a way to sort of create a synthetic dividend. And I'm telling you now, there are vol books out there that are set up the wrong way. And if this thing starts to get away in terms of volatility, you watch how quickly things go pear-shaped. And we talked about this before, that dealers themselves don't have the deep pockets that they did previously to absorb or take a principal position and take this vol over. So to your point, Guy, it's trading electronically, it's trading in various buckets, and it's not in strong hands for sure. Guys, speaking of volatility, some of these, some of all trades and some of these ETFs, we talk about ETFs from time to time, but there's a new one out there that Dave Portnoy has decided to launch on the back of an industry Who? called, yeah, your, your boy Portnoy. You know, oh, before yeah. you start, you know, it's yeah. interesting because I don't follow him on the Twitter, but somebody reached out to me today and said, Dave Portnoy is trolling you people. And I don't really understand what that means until I looked at the video and he made this one and a half, two minute video. I don't know if they're Jiffies or Mimi's or something, but Dan Nathan is featured prominently in it. Karen Feinerman's in it. He doesn't it. like us, guy. He, no, he doesn't he like does, us. He doesn't. Dave he, Dave Trader, he just doesn't know you. I, you know, and you know what's really interesting, Danny Moses? I have a couple suits. I used to reserve them for bar mitzvahs and weddings and that sort of thing. Um, I, I literally think I have like two suits. I haven't worn a suit in a year either. And I don't like being called a suit by a guy who's like some sports gambling uh, Johnny come lately to the stock market. Well, the suit just decided to capture 75 basis points of a fee on his, on this ETF. So what's he doing? Through. What's he doing? Is he like sponsoring an ETF? What, what, what's yeah, he doing? so it's, it's from an indice called Buzz, but yeah. I think his ETF should be D-U-M-B instead of B-U-Z-Z. <laughs> this thing's ridiculous, but it's a cinema momentum play. It's 75 stocks. They have to be 5 billion in market cap. And somehow there's artificial intelligence and algos set up to scour the internet for mentions of companies and I guess they say if it's positive mentions versus negative mentions, although with all the sarcasm out on Twitter, I'm sure those two can be conflated. But I was reading through, because I'm going to read through it and give it a fair shake of what it is. It rebalances monthly. So first of all, this is just prey to the algos and HFTs that are out there that want to figure out how to trade these things. This is the cart leading the horse, not the horse leading the cart. If you have a portfolio of these momentum companies and they start to do poorly, well, it's self-fulfilling that it will be knocked out of the ETF. Now, there's been two ETFs that have been tried off of this indice before from Van Eck. They both failed in the last five or six years or whatever it's been. This is the third iteration try, and I'm sure this one will fail as well. Now, he may get assets. We won't know. It started trading today. It was down 3 or 4%, I believe. It started trading. You won't know what assets they're gathering you know, until then. But just reading through this, and then, Guy, I want to get your opinion on this. Under point three, it says alpha strategy. That's the key word for anybody out there who doesn't know. Alpha is like the hedge fund keyword. You, you have alphas, means you can make money better than anyone else. Take advantage of this ahead of the game alternative to traditional large cap U.S. equity strategies. I don't know how this is ahead of the game because we've said before on the show, when it reaches retail, for the most part, although I give credit to how powerful retail has become, the trade is over. So I, I would actually do the opposite long or short, of everything that this thing would find. No, what's interesting is, and just embedded in that, the fact that it rebalances monthly, you know they're going to be have people out there with bullseye on the back of these things, and they're going to absolutely set up for that monthly rebalance. And they're going to be people in our world, Danny and Dan. We used to call it running people in, and that, this, this thing is just primed for exactly that. I think it really represents everything that's really wrong right now in the marketplace. One, it's an ETF, which... I don't love. You're you're pulling together 75 different companies and there's no way to create alpha, in my opinion, from that. You're going after the same momentum stocks. It's like a last 
gasp and grabbing for this. It doesn't make any sense to me. And you're paying 75 basis points on an expense ratio to, you know, you don't really see that when you're buying it, but it's in there as far as the performance is related to it. And it's easy to dissect and easy to knock off. And I just don't get it. And I think this is the type of thing that retail investors need to be aware of and not be excited about. This is not a good product for them. To me, this is a backwards looking product. And so let me just close the loop on this buzz. And if this was a B and it's going to sting you and the B dies after it stings you, that's kind of where we are right now, I think, with <laughs> what's going on with ETFs and retail. Why is it go after momentum right now? The biggest problem with trading momentum is that when momentum ends, there's no fundamentals to buy it. There's no level where you say, oh, that's cheap. Oh, it's 10 times earnings or 12 times earnings. That's the problem with momentum. It's great on the way up, but when that tide goes out, it's awful. So seeing a product like Buzz right now, I just feel like, guys, don't buy this. Don't buy this out in retail. Maybe I'll get killed for saying that. Go do work on one of those 75 stocks instead and find the one that you really like and do the work on it. So sorry, I just had to close the loop on that. Yeah, but here's the thing. I just say that you make a great point. When 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 the fever breaks, there's no bid. And, and you know, we've been talking about these new issues that have been coming to market now, at least on Fast Money every night for months and months, but on the podcast for the last month. I mean, look at this like C3 AI was trading at like 60 times sales. I mean, with massive market cap, right? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Zoom, the other night when it reported it was trading like 33 times sales, right? And so, you know, some of these companies are not profitable. Zoom is actually very profitable. Snowflake, also a massive sales multiple, not profitable. So at some point, you know, these stocks have to grow into these valuations. Palantir, the same thing. It's been in business for 15 years, just went public, not profitable. So, you know, the idea that we don't care what valuations are in a zero interest rate environment, as Guy has mentioned on many times, you know, when you start to hit a patch of volatility like we've had of late, profits matter because people, investors, need to understand what they own when they're thinking about their portfolios holistically. And that's when they start to kind of think about valuations in the rearview mirror. I would say every cycle is different. And we've all lived through a few of them together. And 2000 felt just like this, but things always rhyme. They never repeat, right? But this one definitely rhymes with 2000. And what happened in 2000 was you had a NASDAQ that was exploding higher, uh, the internet was coming on the scene. People were excited about the macro. But when the momentum left and these companies were left to find a buyer in the stock market that was trying to use a reason to own them, when momentum ended, it ended. And I'm not saying there's not stuff to buy. And I think Dan and Guy would echo that at all. Make your list. Buy the stocks that you want to buy. Wait for the pullback. There are always going to be good buys in the market every single day, even if we're bearish on the macro. Yeah. So, you know, what's really different this time, Danny, is that, you know, me coming into the business in the late 90s, you know, I suffered through a very long protracted bear market, as we all did from the top in March of 2000 to the lows in, in March of 2003. And then during the financial crisis, the market, the stock market topped out in November of 2007 and didn't bottom out until I think March or April of 2009. Those were excruciating periods to own risk assets, right? When they made lower lows for months and months, quarters on end, that sort of thing. And I think what happened just this time around, or at least in the last 10 years since the financial crisis, because monetary policy has been so easy and because Guy has obviously formulated this narrative about the Fed, and I think he's right in a lot of ways, they're always there to kind of 
buoy risk assets and they think they're booing the consumer, but they're really just kind of booing uh, risk asset holders, which is largely a very small percentage of our population. So we've all been kind of tricked by this sort of thing. And so you got to kind of buy the dip. And when I look at where we are right now, the one issue that really troubles me is the debt and what it took us to just get here to these highs where we are with the backdrop of this pandemic and the backdrop of that nasty recession. Um, so I'm kind of optimistic on the other side of the pandemic. What we're talking about here, they're all the, the historical signs and the signs of a top in the market, right? And I think that's what we're speaking about here. But there are areas, Dan Nathan, that actually look sort of interesting. And you've talked about this, Dan. You actually said many months ago, I think it was in the fall, that the best looking chart that you saw was Morgan Stanley and other financials. And quite frankly, although they've had huge runs, even in this environment, banks probably still work. Yeah. So, so, so bank stocks, you know, were obviously ground zero. They seem to be ground zero in every crisis that we have, um, at least over the last 15 years or so since the um, dot-com implosion. At some point, they were going to turn, right? The interest rates could only go so low. Um, a lot of people were here were saying they were never going to go negative here in the U.S. They didn't officially go negative. And then when we got more clarity or more visibility on the virus and the reopening, then it was going to be underperformance was going to go to outperformance performance. That's what we've seen. I think banks have run too far too fast. You guys just heard what I had to say about rates. We know net interest margins are very, very important part of that. I think you probably see a bit of a reversion trade in in the banks, especially as we get to the end of Q1 here. This is the first sector that's going to report in the mid um, of April. And we might have just some really euphoric sentiment around that group right there. That being said, Okay, and I do like the MAGA complex. I like the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google, then the Amazon, and I actually think they're kind of reasonably priced here. Amazon, I think, is very, very interesting for the fact that it has not confirmed a new high in the S and P 500 since September. That is absolutely amazing when you think about it. It's the third largest market cap company um, here in the U.S. But I think you want to see that complex come in a little bit. You want to buy that. That is going to be defensive. It's going to be viewed as value tech for all intents and purposes. And the moats that they have and the balance sheet and the management's ex Bezos, who's leaving this summer, um, I think that that is going to be a great re-rotation trade into the spring. And I think you want to let some of this stuff come to you. That being said, I'm going to tell you guys that this is a little bit under the hood here. I think what's going on in these big box retailers, Walmart, Target, Costco, Home Depot, Lowe's, I think it's really bearish. Whatever your expectations are about the consumer right now and their balance sheets and this new fiscal stimulus that's coming to the tune of $2 trillion, look at the charts of those stocks. They act like death. They act like this, this stimulus bill is not happening. They act like there's going to be a fourth wave of this virus or something like that. So I don't know what the hell is going on there. So I'd avoid those right now and I'd start scaling into the mega cap tech, not high valuation tech, not the crap like Zoom that turned on a dime this week after supposedly great earnings and guidance, but the stuff that we know is going to be around here and they have this defensive modes. Well, I'll tell you that one of the reasons you mentioned, Dan, you made some great points. I'll give you one more reason. Input costs are going higher and the market is asking, can these big box retailers, can they pass on those costs to the consumer? And right now, it's shoot first, ask questions later. And oh, by the way, Danny Moses, valuations in a 0% environment don't matter valuations with rates going up as fast as they have been going and will continue to go, in my opinion, do matter. So for those folks out there that say valuations don't matter and it's different this time, it ain't different this time. I would say every cycle is different and we've all lived through a few of them together. 
And 2000 felt just like this, but things always rhyme. They never repeat, right? But this one definitely rhymes with 2000. And what happened in 2000 was you had a NASDAQ that was exploding higher. Uh, the internet was coming on the scene. People were excited about the macro. But when the momentum left and these companies were left to find a buyer in the stock market that was trying to use a reason to own them, when momentum ended, it ended. And I'm not saying there's not stuff to buy. And I think Dan and Guy would echo that at all. Make your list. Buy the stocks that you want to buy. Wait for the pullback. There are always going to be good buys in the market every single day, even if we're bearish on the macro. I would love to see a really sharp pullback or a sustained pullback for maybe a few weeks, a few months, or that sort of thing. And if you could buy stocks in these sectors that are reasonably priced for value on the other side of the pandemic, I think you're going to be very happy. Well, be careful what you wish for, Dan Nathan, because <laughs> you just might get it. And, you know, Led Zeppelin 4, every Zeppelin album is a great album. But on Zeppelin 4, they did a cover of a Memphis Mini and Kansas Joe McCoy song. The name of the song was When the Levee Breaks. And, folks, if it keeps on raining, the levee is going to break. When we come back, our conversation with the great Mikel Jolet. Now it's time to go off the tape with Mikel Jolet. Mikel is a creator and frontman of the indie band The Airborne Toxic Event. Prior to forming the band, Jolet graduated from Stanford University. He was an on-air columnist for NPR's All Things Considered, an editor-at-large for Men's Health, and an editor at Filter Magazine. His fiction has been published in McSweeney's. Jolet is the author of the New York Times best-selling memoir, Hollywood Park, which is also the name of the sixth album by the band, that serves as a companion to the memoir. It's our distinct pleasure to go off the tape with Mikel Jolet. Well, you heard that amazing introduction of our next guest, Mikel Jolet. Mikel, it's unbelievable to have you with us on the tape. I got to tell you something. Dan Nathan is beside himself. He's excited. Dan, take it away. Yeah, so guys calling me Stan Nathan all day here <laughs> in anticipation of this. Don't worry. We, we don't, there's no obsessive, compulsive thing here. Hey, Mikel, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. We're going to cover a ton of stuff. And what we really want to talk about at the very beginning here is just kind of like last year, you released an album. You released this amazing memoir. And I just want to say this. I've had a really excellent experience with both. You know, I actually listened to the memoir in a very long car drive over a weekend. And I listened to you read it. And that was really an amazing way for any of our listeners here to take in Hollywood Park because it was really a very personal experience. And then what I did the next day on the way home where I was going is I listened to your entire catalog from start to finish. Now, you released Hollywood Park, the companion album with the memoir. But what I really came away with thinking was that your whole body of work was the soundtrack to your memoir. And I just really kind of want to talk about that a little bit and just talk about what was it like kind of introducing this art into this COVID world where you couldn't support it the way you might with a tour and book signing and all that sort of stuff. Well, the question of like putting it out, you know, if I could choose to do it again, I would have put it out. I would have waited a year. It was not a good time to put out the biggest project of your life. The five years locked in a room writing a book and you know two years in a studio with the band making a record and then you put it out and and it's like pandemic and it was the, it came out the week of the George Floyd protests I think George Floyd was murdered on the Friday after the book came out on the Tuesday I think that was the day the record came out so there were bigger things happening in the world than my book and so I would say uh, the forces of history were just pushing in this other direction than my book so I, yeah, I don't know if it was the right environment to put it out in. Having said that, 
there was something about putting it out that made the the pandemic i don't want to say more bearable because I, I think that you know other people have gone through worse stuff than our family has with this we've been relatively blessed but you know art connects people and there was this way in which we did this whole virtual book tour and i did all these dates and all this stuff and so it just kind of it was a way of staying engaged as opposed to just you know being upset about what was going on in the world. You know, it's really interesting because I knew your album was coming out. I really didn't know the memoir was coming out. And I don't read too many rock star memoirs, but your music has been such a big part of my life for the last 10 years. I've seen you probably on every single time that you've been in New York City over the last 10 years. And I saw maybe a clip on on like the Today Show or something. I had no idea about your background. We're going to get into that in a little bit. But let me tell you what I was super bummed about is that I was going to see you four nights in a row in early April 2020 at your Bowery residency. Oh, Bowery and then I was going to see yeah. you at the Beacon. And so, you know, to me, that was a total bummer. I haven't seen you guys in maybe four years or so. What was it like releasing an album and not being able to play it live for your fans and not being able to figure out how you want to present this music going forward in that live audience? Because let me tell you something. I've seen you live, like I said, a bunch of times. You guys are a fun band to watch and your music that's recorded is fantastic but watching it live is just amazing it's very kind Dan. thank you it's like you have this moment where you create something and it doesn't feel real until you're sort of in the room with people and it's kind of reflected back to you and i think as a musician that that like that's such a big part of being a musician it's one of the things that distinguishes i, I always say musicians are kind of tougher than say like actors or or other types of artists because we have to be out on the road you have to like you have to live in a bus and then play for a few thousand people and you've got you meet probably a hundred people a day personally in your life, all of whom sort of expect you to remember them, some of whom you do and some of whom you don't. And you're just constantly out. And one of the the good parts of all that is, you know, you feel sort of seen, if that makes sense. Like you write something because you you sort of want to be seen for having thought about something or felt something. And that's what that's the impetus to write. And so to share it in a room is great. So to not be able to do that on this record that meant more to me than any record that I'd maybe made was really tough. It's like everything this year. It sucked. It's like, it's like the 2020. So how was that this year? It fucking sucked. How was that this year? It fucking sucked. Like there's so much of that this year. And that was, that was it for us in the artistic community. I think a lot of artists felt this way where it was just, man. And also, what do you do with all these people who are performers who like the reason that you got you know, it's comedians and musicians who like part of who you are in your DNA is you perform, you go out there, you get on stage, you do your dance, you sing your song, you tell your jokes, you hear the claps. That's, that's like why you got into it. Well, I'll tell you this real quickly though, that your album, when it came out was part of the soundtrack of my family's quarantine. My, my daughter, 17 year old daughter, I have two daughters, loves, loves you guys. Such hot blood is one of her favorite albums. I looked on her Spotify. Elizabeth is her 15th most played song of all time okay so she said spotify for for five years i just want to say one thing though is that your connection you just said you meet all these people when you're on the road the first time i ever saw you was at webster hall in the east village in new york and the show got done a lot of people are piling out they're gonna go hit the bars or whatever you jumped off the stage and you just started just just doing the thing with the people like letting people take selfies with you that back then i think they were kind of like nokia flip phones it was maybe like 2010 or 11 or something like that and i looked up and i said to my wife i was like that guy gets it he knows how to connect beyond his music with his fans so i just wanted to say that to you because i you know i understand how you feel about not doing what you do every day and being able to impart that on your fans well it's part of it's that you put so much into this moment of music and it's like a beacon Right. And people are drawn to that beacon because they have had similar moments in their lives. And I think that's 
true for my band as much as any band in the world, probably because for a couple of reasons. One, our biggest hit wasn't a pop song that launched our career. It was It was just a short story set to music that attracted, I think, a certain sensibility. We have two other sort of popish kind of hits that are sort of more about kind of like who we are as a live band, I think, like Changing and um, Helen Back are more sort of like the kind of thing you expect from us live. Like there's just a stomp in rock and roll band. And then a lot of the music's about grief and it's about loss and it's about these sort of life-changing ideas. So when you when you meet people, there's a sense, I, I always feel like I'm meeting kindreds, you know, and I remember being in Austin and we played Emos one night and finished the show and it came out and there's this line of people and I was just kind of walking up doing the meet and greet saying hi to people just enjoy meeting people sometimes sometimes not I want to go sit in the bus and just like go to sleep and one after the other there was two people they had tears in their eyes they didn't know each other just happened to be standing next to each other and one was like this 40 year old man this like white dude who looked like you know he might have worked in marketing or something just kind of like a pleasant gentleman and he had tears in his eyes he was crying and, you know, he said that a certain song I'd written had meant so much to him and he thanked me and stuff. And then right next to him was a 15-year-old girl. I think she looked like Mexican or Latina or something. She was crying. And she would seem like kind of like one of these honor student types. There's a lot of these like honor student types that like the band for some reason. And she told me a different song, you know, had spoken to her. And it was, I just remember thinking that moment, like, who are these two people who've lived such different lives and have such different experiences and they're 25 years apart and they're seem to have very different sort of cultural backgrounds being drawn to this. And I think that the thread is there's this kind of sense that if I can put this moment into a song, like what I'm after, if I can put it into a song, then somehow I'm relieved by that idea. Somehow the idea of capturing this, and it's a different idea. It's a hell of an assumption because some of the assumptions you can make about music are like, if I write a great lick, that's got a great lick. That sounds really great. That's one way to write. You know, another might be like, if I get a great pop mix, and I get my voice to sound just right, and I'm a pop singer, that's a whole other thing. Or if I'm trying to, you know, maybe there's a certain kind of idolatry you're trying to inspire. You know, let's say if you're like a Justin Bieber or something like that. Certainly there's rock bands that are like that. And I, I think for me, it's it all comes down to capturing that moment of sorrow or struggle or pain or realization. And to walk around with the assumption that that's what's going to make great music is only going to attract certain people. And I tend to really like the people that it attracts because I think that we tend to be kindreds. So there's no question that the guy you're referring to was probably Dan. You just didn't know him at the time. If he was, certainly, if all, you know, if he was crying for sure. So you bring up a great point. So you obviously feed off the energy of your fans and on stage, and you get inspired by them. You came out with Hollywood Park, and and you were really unable to go through with the tour and feed off of that. Has it been hard to write music because you 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 strike me as the kind of guy that cares about money second or third or fourth or fifth. It's more about doing what you love and expressing yourself. Has that been hard to not get that energy and feedback to create the next thing? Yeah, I, I've never done well when I've cared about money. I will say that. I've sort of learned not to care about money in a couple of times in my life when I've made decisions based on money. It's gone horribly, so I just don't. Like that line in Moneyball, Billy Bean talks about, like Brad Pitt playing Billy Bean talks about how like he's never made a good decision around money. Like That makes sense to me. And you can't make good art that way. You got to make art for other reasons or else it sucks. And I think anyone who's a listener or a reader or watches a movie who knows when people make that decision, people have good bullshit detectors. They can tell. They're like, oh, I see. They're selling out a little bit to do this thing, whatever. So, yeah, it was definitely not the easiest year to spend doing that. And, yeah, my motivation isn't really to do anything other than try to capture my own life. F. Scott Fitzgerald in This Side of Paradise talks about the difference between a scholastic life 
and a non-scholastic life. And the way he means scholastic, he means just the life of an artist. We all go through the same things. Uh, we have sorrows and we have struggles and there are some intense melodramas happening in the suburbs every single night. And they're also happening in the hood and they're also happening in some really well-off houses that you wouldn't expect. People are dealing with abuse and they're dealing with you know, addiction or they're dealing with just something, someone died or someone they love left or, you know, we all have these intense moments of struggle and strife. And, and so for me, the assumption is the only difference is you create a record of it. And that's F. Scott Fitzgerald's thing. The only difference in a scholastic life is you leave a record. And so that's, that's, I guess, with the book and with the record, that's, that's the goal is to make, to make a record of what that's been like. Well, you mentioned F. Scott Fitzgerald. It's interesting. So my old man graduated from Fordham University in uh, 1960. I mentioned that because one of the guys he went to school with was the author of White Noise. Uh, and he told me late in the 80s. I remember, I think it was 88, 89. He's like, I just stumbled upon a book from one of the guys I went to school with. You got to read this book, White Noise. What about that book so resonated with you that you decided to name your band after the events. I mean, that's your, the name of the band's coming straight from that book. Yeah. First of all, I'm not sure it was a good decision. Sometimes I wonder if like, you know, if I, I think I'd set out to set, to write, to create this kind of art rock band. That was something like Andy Warhol's ideas about what a happening is and what it means. Like we played with TVs on stage. We had a car hood on stage. We brought people up to dance and went out into the audience and filmed them filming us while we filmed them. You know, we always wore black and whites. So we look like TV static. That's kind of how it started. And and then it grew into this uh, larger thing. Uh, so I'm not sure if the airborne toxic, I feel like it conjures like OC death metal or something like it's like, I don't know. But that, but the idea was I, I had met Robert Smith from The Cure and we'd had this long talk and, and he'd said to me that he hates the idea of normal. And he was like my, you know, role model. My Mount Rushmore is like Robert Smith, David Bowie, uh, Bruce Springsteen. Leonard Cohen, Robert Smith. So I write about this in the book that he said, I hate the idea of normal. Why be normal? And I wanted a, a name that conjured nothing. I wanted a name that was just neologistic. Like you, like what is a smashing pumpkin? I don't know, an idea from the nineties or something like, I don't know what that is, but then because it isn't something already, you sort of get to inhabit the idea of what that thing is in the world. And so I, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted everyone talks about to be that. Also, I just love that book. I mean, you know, Don DeLillo, it's like, it's just so funny. It was way ahead of its time. It, you know, the, the, the moment where the airborne toxic event gets introduced in the book is the moment he realizes he's going to die as a result of the fact that he realized he's going to die, his whole life changes. And that's what happened to me when I started the band, I'd gone through a brush with something like death and I, um, I wanted to just make music and write, and that's all I wanted to do with my life. And so I thought, what a better, what better name for the band? So you mentioned you didn't name the song, and it's kind of like Radiohead, My Iron Lung, I think is what you're kind of getting at here a little bit. You know, you had this massive hit right out of the gate, right? Back in 2009, sometime around midnight. And, you know, I heard that song on, like, Alt Nation on Sirius XM in the car. And back then I probably didn't have a smartphone. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? I was like, this song is this song rocks. And then I saw you guys on Letterman and David Letterman seemed legitimately like he loved that song. Is that fair to say, like the way he walked out after that? And I know you guys went on Letterman a lot. And I know that if you're a comedian or a lot of musicians feel like if Letterman liked you and you saw that energy, what, what was that moment for? Like right out of the gate, having that massive hit and then having this just commercial success. And I know that probably put a lot of pressure on you guys going forward, but it was pretty cool. Luxury problem. It's a good kind of problem to have. It's true that it came with a lot of pressure. But it was confusing, honestly, because I had just written, I was writing a lot of songs. And I, I guess I had this sense 
that there weren't a lot of people walking around writing songs as sort of intently as I was at the time. And I, that's, that's just kind of a sense I had in my head. Like there can't be that many people in the world writing a song a day and living for music the way I'm living. And that, and that was a good like nine month to year, year and a half part of my life. And, you know, I was dating different girls. I was drinking too much. I was going through all my sort of different melodramas and writing about it, writing about it, writing about it. It was so to have a song that was just a short story that I had never intended to be some sort of big thing. I just thought it was a good song become that thing was, was that was really cool, but also confusing because I didn't sort of understand. Like if you write a song and it's got like this certain hook, you can go, oh, I got to write another one of those. And I, I didn't see it that way. It just seemed kind of confusing and I was a little baffled by it. David Letterman. Yeah. Him being a fan was a big thing for us. Like he had us on so many times. He had us on his 30th anniversary show. He wanted us to play on his 30th anniversary show. He, um, Paul sat in with us. We gave Paul sheet music and the band sheet music and they played with us a different time we played. That was great. And yeah, that, there is that sense from comedians like, all right, if David comes over and he gives you the handshake, then you know, you did something right. Let me cheapen the moment of the Hollywood Park book and record by talking about horse racing for a second and just yeah, kind of yeah, let's, take, hey, that's what Hollywood Park's about. Let's do take it. all the meaning away from you and your father's relationship with your brother. And let's just cut to the chase about gambling on horses. I know it was a symbolic to be with your father every Saturday and go there. Did you get enjoyment? Because by the way, when you wrote in your memoir about the feeling that everyone's rooting at the same time, it is the one thing like for the, you know, they, they call the Derby the greatest two minutes in sports and all that. Like it's time stands still during that race. And so can you explain, just separate the emotional aspect of your father with kind of being in the moment of the horse racing? And have you done anything in horse racing since? Or like, have you done any, have you bought any horses? Are you gambling? Well, first of all, when the book came out, TVG tweeted about it and did a whole article on it. And I just was like, my heart, my heart, because like my dad had this shady TVG account for forever. And he like, <laughs> one right. of the surgeries he had before he died, because my dad was a big handicapper. He loved horses and he was good at it too. He made money handicapping. You know, you can make money and handicapping like you can with, you know, poker and it's not like blackjack or whatever. Like it's a real, if you're good at it, you can make money at it. And he was a good handicapper. And I remember before he died, he, he had a heart surgery because he had a series of heart surgeries. And <laughs> He called me up. He's like, Mick, Mick, there's a carryover from Churchill. No one had hit the pick six during the right. Derby. He's like, there's a carryover from Churchill. I, I need you to log into my TVG account and get on the pick <laughs> six. I'm like, dad, you're going in for fucking surgery in the morning. You like, it, it was a dangerous, it was like a 50, 50 surgery. It was like, yeah. they were putting in a balloon or a stint or something, but it was like cardiomyopathy. He might die on the table and we were all terrified he was going to die. And he's calling me. I think we're going to have this sweet moment. Instead, he gives me his TVG account. He's like, it's all right. If I die, you can keep the money. <laughs> so he, he goes to the surgery and he wakes up and I'm there, you know, dewy eyed. I'm like, my dad, I hope my dad's okay. And the first thing he says, is like, did we hit it? <laughs> <laughs> For those people out there that don't understand when there's a guaranteed payout and it's a pick six, you can bet a wicked amount of combinations. You could have five. And I'm sure your dad like went through like five, two, three, yeah. four, and all the, all these combinations. Then people are like, 50 cent pick six cost you like $500. So like, yeah, like put the thing right, in, right. but I, I, I want to make it was a, I think that yeah. was like a two fifty ticket, by the way, we'll go back to other things in a moment, but I always say just to bring this back to business for a second, since the genre of the show, although this is much better than anything we've done. I always tell people when you get to a track and you're a handicapper, same way you get to the stock market and you, you want to look at stocks. The worst thing you can do is look at the board first. You do not want to look at the odds first because if you look up at the board and a horse is 30 to 1 and there's a horse that's even money, your brain will say, all right, let me just cross off 
the high odds horse and go for the even money because you don't handicap it correctly. And if you can find something, you know, like a horse is going onto the turf from the dirt. And I know you probably know all this stuff. And it's like, oh, its father was a great, you know, turf horse. You're just looking for the best bet. Exactly. You might not win any money that day, but if you find the best bets, you did your job. And over time, if you find the best bet and what you, I think what you guys would call an inefficiency or value like investing, the, which never works, but yeah, exactly. But just the, the difference, the gulf between what people think the outcome is going to be and what the odds actually say the outcome is going to be. And you exploit that. That's how you make money as a handicapper. You do that. Well, you learn how to do that through, yeah, workouts, how they run, what's the nature of the, of the field and how they run against that type of field a jockey to some extent you know things like that really your, your memoir is like a very long poem it, it is brilliantly written it's a fascinating story and i guess we, we could start just real quickly and and we obviously this is the first four years of your life you lived in an orphanage in a cult and your mom you know rescued you from that cult and and you know you went back and forth between your mom and your dad in oregon and la in some really difficult situations and your dad is a, an ex-con an ex-heroin addict but clean from the moment that you got out i mean that's the guy who turned you around. That's the guy who took you by the ear and said, kid, you're going in the wrong direction and you got your crap together. Um, you know, at some point, it sounds like early high school. Is that right? And you made your way to Stanford and you were an athlete and you started this band. And it's just against all odds, if you really think about it. Can you speak to, is, is that where this is all coming from um, in a way? And listen, I read it in the book. I get it. But what, what can you impart, I guess, on those? Because the culmination of the memoir is that you made it, man. You're on the other side of it and you saw a lot of people who didn't make it to the other side of it yeah a lot of that happened at hollywood park um that's why the name the name of the book is that and and uh george saunders i'm reading george saunders new book um which is great and it's about writing and he talks about the easy ending that you take away from yourself so that you can have the better ending that exists out there and now you know in memoir you don't get to like make up the facts the facts just have to be the facts but you do have to spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to construct the story there's a lot of start points and a lot of end points. And you have to frame changes that go through characters that make a story or else it's not going to be any good. And that idea was, was really strong for me. Like, okay, so what is the end point of this book? And then what is the obvious thing when, oh, when you first leave the cult and dad's an ex heroin addict that left us for a tramp and we've been abandoned. And that's all my mom is telling me, oh, your dad's a piece of shit. And he left us for a tramp. And then you sort of think, okay, so that's what that's going to be. And then, and then you start to find there's this guy and he's, yeah, he's got an eighth grade education, but boy, does he love his kids. And how does he show it? I mean, you know, we're not, we aren't having a lot of like big therapy talks, but what we are doing is body surfing at the beach. And we are, you know, he really cares about us. And it's really clear that he does. And he's having a lot of talks with me. And there's this, there was this moment in my life when my brother had just gone to rehab and he was 15, he was already using PCP, LSD, Coke and drinking. And he was just a bona fide addict from day one. And I had started drinking a lot. And uh, we were riding motorcycles. We had like dirt bikes. You know, we did a lot of like off-road kind of stuff where you like jump uh, and you kick the thing out and your buddy takes a picture. And we did all that kind of stuff. And I'd gotten in a really bad motorcycle accident, ditching school with some some friends one day. And I went to the hospital. And my dad, you know, I confessed afterwards because I spent a week in the hospital, with bad concussion. I'd broken some ribs and it was a really bad accident for that age. And it scared me. And I confessed to my parents that I was drinking and I was using drugs and I was smoking and I was doing all this crazy stuff. And my dad, he was just like not judgmental about it. He said, we're going to get through this together. We're not going anywhere. I'm going to be right here. We're going to make this change you want to make. And then he took me to Hollywood Park 
And a lot of time at Hollywood Park, we didn't talk, you know, we just cracked jokes and, you know, he taught me fractions. I'm like seven years old on my dad's knee and he's showing me odds. And that's, that's literally how I learned how to divide. That's how I learned what a fraction was, was from odds. And so I'd been doing this for years and, and a lot of time that's what we did. But then this one day we had this talk and it was after the motorcycle accident. And my dad, who'd done three years in Chino prison and who'd, you know, been locked up in a Mexican prison and who'd eighth grade education, he turns to me and he just says, listen, don't be me. Go do something better. I know we tell all these great stories because a lot of the books about how we lionize our father and we hear all these crazy stories about stuff that he did and got away with. And he escaped from that Mexican prison, by the way. And, you know, he escaped from the cops a bunch of times. All these crazy stories of things that he'd done. And we love these stories. He said, you know, we tell these funny stories, but it's terrible. Being an addict is terrible. Being in prison is terrible. He's like, I want you to go do something better. You know, he said, don't fuck it up. You have a chance to go do something better. That's your Bardo moment, right? Lincoln into Bardo, George Saunders, that period between, you know, just going through the motions and rebirth. I mean, did that book resonate with you? Because I know I read that book as well. Yeah. I like a guy coming in with the George Saunders reference. Too. All right. I love this. <laughs> yeah, baby. L and the B. Want to talk Pastorelia? Want to talk 10th of December? Rain dead <laughs> megaphone. I got them all. By the way, guy, guy also tells his kids, don't be me. yeah there was a strong feeling of go change there was like this sense of like here's what we are as men you guys all you know your dad sort of teaches you here's what it means to be a man do we fight do we are we the kind that back down from the fight or are we the guy that socks someone in the face are we the guy that's gonna take shit from a bully or not are we the guy that's going to how are we gonna talk to the women or the girls that we like or the guys if we're gay or whatever like how we get our mod- models for masculinity. And here was my dad punct- like puncturing the balloon that we'd created around him in service of something bigger, which was he wanted more for his son. And also my dad was great because like other dads would be like, well, son, you know, I want you to have a good, and he, he would just be like, don't fuck it up. <laughs> I was like, that was how he'd put it. He'd be like, don't fuck it up. Come on, what the, you know, let's, let's do this right. And it helped a lot. And it helped me to sort of think through oh, I don't have to be this. Cause I felt, you know, if I go this route of trying to go to college and go to school, whatever, then I'm betraying all the, my brother dropped out of ninth grade, ends up in jail, rehab, my uncles all in prison. None of them graduate high school. My dad, eighth grade goes to prison. And so I felt like, okay, I'm, I, I'm going to somehow be violating our oath as the Jolay men, as the pirates and the ne'er-do-wells, like one step in front of the law, like a fucking, you know, with like a sword, like, ah, that's who we were. It's like the charming pirate or some shit. And he was like, no, don't, don't do that. And it really meant a lot to me because it allowed me to then start to kind of, oh, he's going to be proud of me if I go do this other, if I make this other choice, I'm not going to be stepping away from, I'm actually going to go be doing something that's going to make him proud. And we don't talk enough as a culture about how fucking important that is. That's why gangs exist. That's why so much what we talk about is toxic masculinity exists, but it also exists in these positive ways where at a certain age in your life as a boy, you want so badly to just make some older man proud of you, whether that's your dad or your uncle or your older brothers or maybe some older friends from the neighborhood. There is a strong, like you will go to war, you will die. Tim O'Brien and the things they carry, he talks about how many young men died in Vietnam, even though they were terrified because they were worried that if they didn't go, their friends would call them a pussy. And they went and they died. They, their lives were up because they were so afraid of being embarrassed. 
And like, what a powerful thing. Why do you think the Crips exist? Why do you think South Lowe's exists? Why do you think 18th Street exists? It's because you've got these older sort of gang members who are taking these young, super impressionable, let's face it, military-aged boys who want so badly to fit into the world of men. So for me, for him to do that was like, okay, here's here's what it means to be a man. It means this this other thing. Now go go be that. So, Mikkel, let's talk about, um, you said not to get too political. I started noticing your tweets. I I have to think it was sometime in 2016. And I just kind of want to kind of speak about my own personal situation for a second, because, you know, Guy and I um, do this program on on CNBC called Fast Money. It's kind of like their post-market show. It's kind of like their sports center. And, you know, I'm in a point at some point in 2015 or early 2016, you know, when it became very clear that Donald Trump was going to be the candidate um, running that I, I, I just, you know, the disinformation, the hate, the cruelty, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was just enough. And so my Twitter feed on CNBC, every time I had the opportunity to do it, and it cost me, man, in, in a lot of ways, you know, our audience is, is made of what they call Wall Street Republicans. It's a fiscally conservative, socially liberal sort of thing. And then when you get into other parts outside the coast, they're the hardcore Fox News watchers, but they go to CNBC for their financial news. So, so my question to you is that at some point you made a decision that you were going to lead with this view. You became an activist. You have a massive following on Twitter. You do not mince words. At one point, did you worry about alienating a part of your fan base? Was your band, you're part of a band. It is a business. Your livelihoods are the band. You know, rely on it. Was this a really hard decision for you or is it one that was just so clear? And was it Trump specifically that activated you? Well, I was pretty outspoken before that. I mean, if you're a fan, you know, first record was winning side, which was about George W. Bush. It's about the incident. Well, there was two where he bombed an Afghani wedding and sort of like the collateral damage of a war that was happening for unjust reasons. And I don't know if there is a just war, but we can agree. Let's say World War II was, you know, defensively just in our participation, whatever. But by that same standard, Iraq, Afghanistan weren't. So I guess I felt like I'd been political for a long time, certainly in my music. And yeah, there was a moment where it was like, enough is enough, man. I can't just sit here and listen to some of it too. I think Trump just offended my sensibilities so much. I'm from LA. You know, I grew up, my family's got black people, Mexican people, Jewish people. I was surrounded. My high school was maybe 12% white or something. Like I just, it was all just so foreign. I wasn't raised around these ideas and the kind of financial Republicans, as you call them, I had plenty of friends that were that. I went to Stanford. I have friends. I have a, one of my best friends runs a hedge fund. Like, like I literally have no like disrespect for people who decide to, I, I always used to bring them up as like, you want to make money efficiently? Go do that. You want to be an artist? Do this other stuff. And he's a good friend of mine. And we talk a lot about stuff and we have a lot of similar values. He just, he wants to make money for a living and he's doing it well. I, I respect that. But that's a different thing than Obama ain't from here and we got to kick the Mexicans out. So yeah, it was just like, this is too much. I have to speak about this. And I guess I just didn't care. I knew there would be some fallout and there was a lot of fallout early on in particular with the band. And some people in the band were like, listen, I need you to do this, not on a band space. You know, we have friends and family who are Republicans. And if you want to do that in your own space, that's fine. And they respected that, but we can't have this in a band space. So I respected that decision and said, okay. Uh, and kept it on my own platform. And yeah, I guess I just didn't give a shit. It just felt bigger than anything. It felt bigger than my band, certainly. and felt bigger than, you know, whether a record comes out and people are going to not go or be mad because of something like, fuck them. I don't care. Like, I, I it, because it, it wasn't about 
I disagree with George W. Bush. I wasn't going to take people who voted for George W. Bush and be like, there's something wrong with you. I understand why some people might vote for George W. Bush. I don't agree with them. I think he's a jackass and an idiot. And I hated George W. Bush. I really did. But this was this is categorically different in a way that has to do with not respecting the fundamentals of what democracy is supposed to be, not respecting the fundamentals of just basic equality between races, the kind of stuff that you just like seems so obvious to speak up against. It didn't even seem like that big a deal. It just felt like, yeah, of course, I don't agree with this out and out racism. Like, no, obviously not. You know, you mentioned things they carried and I'm always, my antenna always go up when the author uses the initials JC as a protagonist, but that it happens to be a great book. As you know, you mentioned Jimmy Cross, but I'll say this part of that. I love that you're, you're vibing with all the literature. Um, dude, I'm here, so guys. with you on this. I didn't get into Stanford, but that's another story. Right. But you know, I love that book. Part of that story is about it's unrequited love, right? I mean, it's a Vietnam story, but you know, Jimmy Cross is pining for somebody. And so my question to you is in the music business, What's your unrequited love? Who would you like to play with, write with, compose, all those things? Like, who is that guy or gal that's out there that's sort of, you know, you're pining for? Well, there were two. One died four years ago, and that's Leonard Cohen. He's just a hero of mine, and I wanted to write songs like Leonard Cohen. One of the reasons I, there's certain people, there's a reason you, you, they wrote a song and you were like, I need to write songs like that. And that was always Leonard Cohen for me. And then the other one, I have a more complex relationship is Bruce Springsteen. I get a lot of Bruce Springsteen energy from the Bruce Springsteen world, which is cool. And it's super complimentary. Dave Marsh, his biographer, said compared us, me favorably to Bruce many times, which is huge and sort of a known quantity about my group. And I, it's very complimentary. And, I, and I, love, I love that. At the same time, as I think a lot of us of my generation, Bruce is like this unattainable ideal. And we struggle with it. Like Titus Andronicus has this record called The the Monitor, where the lead singer just talks about, like, I was trying to get rid of every part of me that isn't like Bruce Springsteen. And part of it's this just crazy, how do you write a song like Thunder Road? And that's how I feel like. I, that's part of it. Like, I just can't wrap my head around how you write Thunder Road. And he wrote it when he was fucking 23. Also, I'm still trying to write that. So that's part of it. And then part of it's like, how the hell am I ever going to carve out something for me in rock and roll in the shadow of this just absolute Titan who is also like by all accounts, a great guy, <laughs> like, you know, and like a lovely human and politically on point and smart as hell. And uh, supposed to be one of the nicest people in rock and roll as well. So you can't, even, you can't, there's no refuge. Oh, he's a prick. Oh, he's British. Uh, <laughs> like he's American. He's working class like me. He comes from pain like I do. He writes about that pain. He, fuck, <laughs> he's Bruce. So I, yeah, I, I struggle. I struggle with that because I, I so admire him at the same time as there's this like Bruce Springsteen of the mind, which is this like heavy thing to have, have to have to deal with. One of the things that, you know, Bruce is, is a tremendous performer, you know, forget about like sitting down and writing that, that, that ballad of, of Thunder Road that he did in 1976 on Born to Run, right? Um, I think it was 76. But the guy, I, I've seen him a couple of years ago, I saw him and he puts on, he put on like a three and a half hour show. I mean, he does it yeah. all the time. I've seen Marathon. Bruce, uh, unfortunately, way too many times. But I want to ask you this, you know, this was last May. 
Dave Grohl wrote this op-ed in The Atlantic, and it really struck me at the time because at the time, you know, you guys were pushing your tour out month to month. You know, no one knew it was going to be a solid year. And he wrote this op-ed, and he called it The Day Live Concerts Return. He says, I'm hungry for a big old plate of sweaty, ear-shredding, live rock and roll ASAP, the kind that makes your heart race, your body move, and your soul stir with passion. And, you know, I read that recently, and I'm like, man, I am so ready. I got to Tickets to see you at the Greek Theater next April, at in Boulder in the in the fall, Pearl Jam this summer in London. Like I'm all in. Um, yeah, are yeah. we going to get it back? What does it mean to you? Is this like the driving force for your art right now to get back in front of live audiences? Well, uh, in reverse order, I don't know if it's the driving force. I can't wait to play. Do I think we'll go? I think we're going to go. I, you know, we have the fo- we have the next spring tour, which I think it's going to happen no matter what. There was the question of our. our we have a fall tour up and a UK tour in the fall. And I think now I think we are, if you'd asked me a month ago, I would have said, I don't think we're going to do it. But now I actually, I think we're going to do it. I feel sort of like the vaccines have just been like the greatest marvel of modern science. You know, it's insane what these vaccines are, are doing and how quickly they came about and vaccines that supposed to take a decade to develop. They did four of them in a year. And they're already being manufactured in the hundreds of millions. So, yeah, I, I think we're going to be out. And I think it's going to be just a fucking bacchanal. I think it's going to be like, especially at our shows, you, you've been to our shows, so you know how it is. Our fans and the connection that we have. And then this record, this like teary, sweaty record, especially after dope machines and you know like the people were not really feeling dope machines and it was like okay well hold on a second i I saw the album release party for or at the warsaw in brooklyn back in 2015 it was amazing and i'd never heard the music and i think that was one of the amazing things about those sorts of events where you guys just went out and you played it cover to cover and your fans were there i loved it but my point is that like that record in our catalog doesn't have the same resonance i think as hollywood park Hollow Park is a record that if you like my band, that's your fucking record. And I knew it. I knew it when I wrote it. I knew it when I put it out. And the response, like at this point, that we have a big, there's more people. Hollywood Park gets more traction streams than the rest of our catalog put together. And we still haven't toured on it. So I just know it's going to be like just this crazy. And also the book with it. And then I'm, and then all the songs are about like the stuff that's in the book. So I can't wait. For those shows we keep my wife and i keep making this joke where it's like june 1st we're having a party and we're having the kind of party where people make mistakes <laughs> that's what we want we want mistake we're not making the mistakes we're married someone's making mistakes at our party we're having june 1st everyone's vaccinated we're gonna leave the kids at home we're gonna turn the music up we're gonna drink we're gonna have a great fucking party <laughs> i feel like that's gonna be the summer and in, in the fall and when concerts return that's why everyone's gonna feel they're just gonna be like i'm going and i i can't wait for that Venus and Mars into rock show into jet long hair at the Madison Square. By the way, there's only one place to see a show. That's Madison Square Garden. But if you had to play one more gig, where are you playing? Like, what's the place that resonates with you? Well, it's the Greek. And it's because for a bunch of reasons. One, that's the last place my dad saw a show before he died. And he he came backstage and, you know, we hung out. And I write about this in the book about like that was only a few months before he died. And it was just a big night for the family uh, to play like this big hometown venue um, that I always dreamt of playing. And two, I, I lived in Los Feliz for a long time, uh, which is where the Greek is, up east, east side of Los Angeles. And I'd always just, I'd walk up the hill and go to the show. And sometimes you could hear like the music from the Greek kind of floating over the hills and like, 
you know, a coyote howling. And it was always there's there's this mystery around this place where it felt like, oh, yeah, that's how you know you made it. I remember we, we played the Echo. Our first show we ever played was at this beer soaked joint called the Echo, you know, 400 capacity bar against the wall rock club. Right. And we booked that joint and the promoter, I remember saying some other local band had just had, had started there and then played the Greek. And I remember the same in the promoter. I said like, God, how do they, how do they get there? How do they even do that? She's like, they start here. And then she was like, you know, after the set, she's like, you know, I could see you guys playing there someday. It was our first show. And it always sort of stayed with me. So something about that place always occupied like some kind of like dreamland idea of, all right, now we've arrived because we're playing the Greek uh, in my mind. Get me to the Greek, man. I'm going to see you there April 30th, 2022. I know you guys are playing there. It's a special That's place. That's a long way. I know, but I'm going to see you before that. Hey, listen, Mikkel, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, just, you know, Guy and Danny and I, we're huge music fans. We're huge Airborne Toxic fans. I urge all of our listeners to go out and, and you know what? Download his book and listen to him read it to you. It's a it's a fascinating um, experience and it's an amazing story. So thank you for sharing that with us and thank you for being here. I just want to say one thing and maybe you do this. You know, you mentioned when we started this conversation, it's been a tough last year for a lot of people and the pandemic has been crazy and a lot of people have been divorced of a lot of things that kind of make bring them joy and everything like that. And I just wanted to say that, you know, and see if you do this for me. You know, my daughter, Alex, is, you know, she had a tough, she, she could use a love song here, man. Is there any way you dedicate that to Alexandra? She, she would love that. All right. I'd be happy to. Alexandra, so I, I don't mind serenading three guys. Like, I really don't. It's kind of fine with me. <laughs> Just haven't been in the music for this long. But let's, uh, all right, Elizabeth. I'll play a little Elizabeth for Alex, Alexandra. Um, this is the song, uh, the final song from uh, Such Hot Blood. There's a distance in your eyes That's why your smile's always such a surprise When you call and you talk to me I wonder which person you're gonna be She said, all your songs are sad songs Or do you always have to see the worst of it? Could you write me just one love song? Put my name somewhere in the middle of it It's not hard to rhyme Elizabeth, close your eyes, boy, and take your best guess, cause the truth is hard, isn't it? She said, I'll be listening in my favorite white dress. These quiet afternoons, she said, I wonder if I've given up my love too soon as her hair fell from a curl. I said you're pretty uptight for a Mexican girl She said, all your songs are sad songs Or do you always have to make me feel like shit? Could you write me just one love song? Put my name somewhere in the middle of it And if you caught a song Elizabeth, all my friends will know that it's about me Cause the truth is hard isn't it but don't take too long i just know you'll come back to me 
said, all these songs are love songs. Just love at times can make you feel like shit. So you write a string of words down. It's better if there's some truth in it. It's true I love you, Elizabeth. I love the way you move in that silly white dress. Cause the truth is hard to admit. I've never known love, this is just my best guess. Whoa. Thanks, man. Wow. That was heavy. Whoa. Thanks, buddy. Hey, listen, just so you know, um, Such Hot Blood is just an, an amazing, an amazing album. And, and, you know, Dope Machines, all of them, man. I, I love it. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, thank you for sharing Hollywood Park, your memoir with us. And I hope it's gotten all the acclaim that you could have wished for because it's an amazing piece of art. So thank you very much, Mikhail. And thanks for just sharing all your thoughts on, on everything. Wall Street sucks. Bitcoin's price earnings multiples suck. All, all the stuff we've been doing for the last like couple months, like you just blew it away. Like put everything in perspective. So I know. Thank you. Thanks uh, so much, Mikel. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is fun. Thank you. Once again, thank you, Mikel Jolet, for joining us. Thank you, folks, for listening to us here on the tape. Please subscribe in the podcast store so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Twitter at OnTheTapePod. We'll see you next week. Yeah.